All right. Well, good morning. If I haven't had a pleasure of meeting you yet, my name's John Henderson, uh, one of the elders here at UBC, one of the associate pastors. And if this is your first time in here, we are in the middle of a series called Matters of the Heart, where we're trying to develop from Scripture a sort of a theology of the heart, an understanding of who we are, made in the image of God, body, soul, but understanding ourselves through the lens of Scripture, how God explains us, how he describes us, how he both sees the problem in us, but also is transforming and redeeming us in Christ. So let's go to him now in, in prayer as we, as we jump in. Well, Father, we recognize our need for your grace, for your mercy, for your compassion, for your sustaining power in us. We acknowledge the fact that you have given it to us through your son, through Jesus, that you have ministered to us through your spirit, that you had given us your word, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, from your good hands. And so we pray now that you would help us receive these gifts with faith, with humility, with joy, with thanksgiving. You would help us to respond to these gifts with eagerness, with zeal to both love you all the more, to love one another, that you would change us by your word, that you would conform us to the image of your son through your spirit, that you would make us more and more to be a people of your own possession who represent you in this world, who reflect your glory in this world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I thought we could start with even just any questions, comments, thoughts, that would be helpful from all the past weeks we've had so far. I know sometimes when we're in the middle of kind of going through the content, some of it may be very new for you. You may feel sort of bombarded with all kinds of passages and scriptures and ideas that it's hard sometimes to formulate questions, comments, thoughts right in the spur of the moment. But, but maybe there's something from previous weeks that has, we've talked about, we've looked at passages that that over these weeks you've just wondered about, you've had questions about, or you've had comments about. So maybe we could start there. Just are there any sort of questions, thoughts, comments you have from previous weeks before we jump into the gift of a new heart for this morning? Yeah, so Lynn is asking about, you know, first week we talked about Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? But then now we've kind of been given new hearts filled with the Spirit in Christ, and, and so what happens to that old deceitful part? Is there now just a war that's going on in us? And then the answer is, so yes and no, meaning, I think that verse, the heart is deceitful above all, all, all else and desperately sick, I think is primarily about an unregenerate heart. I think that's what it's primarily speaking to, that is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I think when we're given a new heart in Christ, as we'll talk about this morning, we're born again by the Spirit. We have a new nature that I like to say that, that we no longer is our nature sin. 
We have a new nature in Christ. But the sinful flesh is still in us. So there's still this element in us that is deceiving. This element in us that is sort of dishonest or fundamentally sinful. But I would say that's no longer the nature of who we are in Christ. And so I think Romans 6 really gets at this, where Paul's talking about, okay, if you've died with Christ and been raised with Christ, sin doesn't have mastery over you anymore. You're not under its dominion. You're not under law, you're under grace. Something has fundamentally changed where the dominant foot of your life is no longer sin, deceit, evil. The dominant foot is spirit. It's Christ. It's and so that's one way to understand that something that's, and we'll talk about this morning with regeneration, that, that you are a new creation. And part of what that means is the ruling principle of your heart and life is no longer flesh but spirit. It's no longer self but Christ. Now, how many of you have arrived where that's perfected, right? And so we realize that while we're, we're put on a whole new set of tracks with a whole new nature, new heart, that's going to take, that's the rest of our life being transformed and changed, that's why Paul's going to say to the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who's begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He, he will keep carrying it out, keep working on it until we see him face to face. 1 John 3, 1, that that day we will be like him, it says, because we will see him just as he is. And so there's something that's not going to be fully consummated, fully perfected till that moment we see Christ face to face. And we'll be exactly the way he is because we'll see him as he is. But it also means we're sort of on this journey of progressive sanctification that we'll talk about next week and the week after, where the heart isn't already perfected and changed. It's in the process of being changed. So that's why it feels like there's still something at work in you that is perplexing, that is frustrating, that at times feels overwhelming. And that's why the, under grace, the gospel is always trying to remind us, but, but you're not master of, by that. You're not under the dominion of that. You're under a new master, new dominion. But we still need grace to, to walk there, to live there. So yeah, great question. Any other comments or thoughts from previous weeks? Well, the gift of a new heart. Because in previous sessions, we did consider the question, why do we think, feel, and act the way we do? That's a lot of what last week was about. How does scripture explain us? Our thoughts, our emotions, our motivations, our attitudes, our way of relating. Yeah, it's the question of explanation. But now we're going to begin to consider the question, how do we change? What is real change? Knowing that we live in a world that's constantly promising change. Books are published every year promising change. Whole therapeutic systems are built on the concept of, we can help you change. And I think in many ways, a lot of those sort of programs and systems are true in the sense of depending on what you mean by change. If you mean by change, okay, a tweak here, a little adjustment there, a little pattern different here, a little behavior shift here, well, then there's lots of things in the world that might work. We have to ask ourselves, is that really what God means by change? Is that really the kind of change that is worthwhile? Is that the kind of change that in the end is going to hold up? To the fire. And so that's why this is an important question. How do we really change? We've established that God created us with hearts, with bodies and souls joined together until death. And we establish that the Lord wants our hearts. 
He wants purity of worship, holiness of love, fullness of devotion from our hearts toward him. We established in previous weeks from scripture that our hearts are the problem. It's the very thing that we, we don't want to give. They enter the world sinful, wretched, rebellious, cannot please God, can't redeem ourselves. And because of our sinful hearts, we depend entirely on the mercy of God, entirely upon the grace of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is what does it mean to really need and depend upon the grace of God for change? Where does that begin? What's that about? And it really does begin with the fact that Christ is himself entirely righteous, that he could actually offer himself for sin as a righteous person, that he could actually satisfy the justice of the Father so that death couldn't have claim over him. So when he goes into the grave, he's there in the grave's like, what are you doing here? can't hold you, have no right over you, no dominion over you. So on the third day, he's raised. And that he can actually impute his righteousness to us. Well, how's that even possible? We can receive his life. We can receive a redeemed heart in Christ. We can be reconciled to God. We can be declared righteous before him. So those are kind of the points I want us to consider today. Number one, the heart of man apart from Christ. But then the heart of Christ, which actually doesn't get a lot of conversation among Christians, is what does it actually mean that he was righteous? That there was no sin in him, no sin found in him. That he actually had to become sin at the cross. So the heart of man apart from Christ, this is what we've talked a lot about in previous lessons, that Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We looked at in Jeremiah, our wound is incurable. The wrath upon us was great. And we possessed no capacity to remedy that. No capacity to change our hearts, to earn forgiveness from God, to reconcile ourselves to God. So that's why the only hope we had is for God to provide a sacrifice, God to provide a man, a seed of woman who would crush the serpent's head, who could remain steadfast of heart where Adam caved, who could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law as a man, as a person in the flesh, who could represent us, who could offer himself to God as a sinless sacrifice who could love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's some of what it means that he fulfilled the law. I mean, the whole law, right, is summed up in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we looked at a few sessions ago, how God wants all of our hearts. And none of us have ever done that. Not for a single day. How much more every minute, every day, every year of our lives. So the fact that Jesus even fulfilled the law, part of what that means is he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart all of his soul, all his strength, perfectly. He loved his neighbor perfectly every day of his life. So it brings us to this idea of the heart of Christ. That second point you'll have there in the notes in front of you. That before the incarnation, Jesus Christ existed as a person, the second person of the triune God without beginning. Like the Father and the Spirit, the Son of God had thoughts. He had emotions, he had will, he had desire, he had action, he spoke, he listened, he loved, he related to God the Father and God the Spirit. 
And then he took on flesh and he dwelt among us, fully God and fully man. And when he took on a body, this is what's important, he didn't begin to think. When he took on a body, he didn't begin to feel or begin to relate or begin to express himself. Rather, all those aspects of his personhood took on human flesh. He appeared in the likeness of a man with a body now mediating his experience of all those things, his expression of all of those things, his expression of relating to the Father and to the Spirit and to people and even to the whole universe. So here's sort of the point I want us to think about here is the body cannot be the reason for thinking. The body can't be the reason for feeling. It can't be the reason for acting. God the Father does all those things and he doesn't have a physical body. The Spirit does all those things and he doesn't have a physical body. Jesus did all those things before he had a physical body. It cannot be the source or seat of the will or of desires or of love or peace or hope or hatred or lust or anxiety or despair. And when you die and your body goes into the ground, you'll either depart to go be with the Lord if you're in Christ or you'll go and be separated from God if you're not in Christ but you won't stop thinking, you won't stop feeling, you won't stop acting, you won't stop relating to God. All those things will keep going, waiting for you to get a new body. Those in Christ, sort of a, a glorified body. Those outside of Christ, another kind of body that will live forever. And what's amazing is if you die outside of Christ, the last thing you're going to want on the last day is a new body but you're going to get it. And in that body, suffer forever. That's part of the warning that Scripture gives us, that the gospel gives us, that on that last day when bodies come up, we want a glorified body to be with God forever. We don't want another kind of body that is fitted for death forever. So a new heart in Christ is therefore to be desired before a better body. That's part of the point. You don't just want a new body. You first want a new heart. So that when you get that new body, it's the right kind of body. And the right kind of body with the right kind of heart that's going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And because the Son of God took on flesh and then never sinned in the flesh, he's able to actually sympathize with our weaknesses, offer himself as an atonement for sins, be a servant to our salvation, which is what I want us to consider now in these three points of Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus, our sympathetic high priest. Jesus, our substitutionary atonement. All this is only possible because the Son of God, fully God, took on flesh, took on a body, dwelt among us. So that he can firstly be a suffering servant. We see the heart of Christ even in his willingness to become a man. Go to, second, or go to Philippians 2, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Where the Apostle Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? We have a new mind in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning the glory of it, the standing of it, the idea that he existed in heaven with angels around him just crying out, glory, glory, holy, holy, holy. That's what he's hearing 
every day, all day, all the time. All the saints of old worshiping him. He's going to take on human form, and what he's going to come here and here is crucify him, kill him. But he emptied himself of all that glory, of all that standing, of all that honor, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Just this idea that he would take on human flesh. He would take on the form of a man. And not just any man. He wouldn't come and he would come as a servant. Not as sort of a reigning king. Everybody serving him. But to be served. To give his life a ransom. Being born in the likeness of men. And this, by the way, to the Greeks, what, this, this is what was such a huge offense. Because this just didn't happen in the Greek pantheon. Gods didn't do this in the Roman sort of system of religion, in the Greek system of religion. The idea that God would actually become a man, take on flesh, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating of deaths. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even we see there in the person and work of Jesus, this mind that was set to humble himself and to obey the will of the Father. Jesus set his mind on the will of the Father and followed it. Jesus set his mind on humbling himself and being a servant. That's why even Paul says, have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, do I exert more energy trying to climb up or climb down? Because Jesus, he's going to exert his energy going down. Not just to become a man, but a servant. Not just a servant, but to die. Not just to die, but to die on a cross. That was the pattern of his life. Taking on a physical body was an act of supreme humility. Submitting himself to social ridicule, to rejection, to abuse. Just continued that. So we see Jesus, body and soul a suffering servant, but also Jesus' body and soul are sympathetic high priests, fully God, fully man. He suffered as we suffered, but without sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Everything we've talked about in these previous weeks, all that physical temptation, all the social temptation, all the demonic temptation, all of it, just as we, he's endured, except without any sin. Not for one second, not for one millisecond did he ever cave, which is astounding. His heart never wavered. His affections never changed. He remained faithful to his father until death. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was fully man. Yet he could fulfill the law, provide a suitable payment for sin, Give us righteousness because he's also fully God. And we need to realize there's no religion in all the world that can offer that kind of priest. That kind of mediator. That kind of person before, to stand between you and God. Every other religion, religion offers a different priesthood. Different mediators. Different sacrifices. Different ways to reconcile you to God. This is the only one that will offer you God in the flesh. Sinless. 
so that he could thirdly be our substitutionary atonement. So, you know, John 17, 19, where Jesus is saying, and for their sake, as he's praying to the Father, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. It's another way to translate that. That they also may be sanctified in truth. He's not saying, okay, for their sake, okay, I, though I'm a sinner, I'm going to set myself apart from that sin. No, he's saying, as the righteous one, I'm going to keep myself separate from sin for their sake so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. We have to realize the only reason we can be sanctified in the truth is that Jesus never sinned. The only way that we can actually be justified before God is that Jesus never sinned, that he consecrated himself, that he sanctified himself. He kept himself apart from all wrongdoing, all corruption. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, it's in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. One of the most succinct presentations of the gospel in the Bible, right there. If anybody wants to ask you, okay, what is the gospel? Just read them that verse. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. He was sinless, but he took on sins, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins paid for by the blood of Christ. His righteousness imputed to us as a gift of his grace, received by faith. And we receive by faith only once we receive a new heart that is alive to God. That's what's going to kind of get us into the bulk of what we're talking about today, of just the truths of, of regeneration. But we say all that ahead of time because the only reason regeneration is even possible is because of everything we just said about Jesus. We receive by faith, once we receive a new heart that is alive to God, alive to his word, able to respond to the gospel of faith, which brings us to this third section of just the new heart in Christ. Any questions so far, thoughts so far on those brief couple sections, our heart apart from Christ or the heart of Christ? Any questions or comments? Yeah, the same there is the, is the very first gift that God gives us is faith, the gift of faith. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit as part of that is, and the way he delivers that gift is going to be through giving us a new heart, regenerating our heart. Because what did the Bible say about us before he gives us a new heart? What are we? We're dead. Do dead people make decisions? That's why there's a seminary prof in Texas that in your preaching class, you had to, he had you write sermons, and at some point you had to come and actually preach a sermon to the class. But the first sermon you had to preach every semester, you had to go find a graveyard and take a, a pulpit or a music stand out there and open the Bible and preach your sermon to the gravestones. And at the end, you had to tell them to get up, to rise, and to believe. And he did that so that everybody would remember what they're doing. <laughs> What's in this work? You're, what are you asking people who are dead to do? The need for the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The need for God to actually intervene in the ministry of the word. And so, yeah, the idea that to actually call people to believe. For us to have believed when we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, what first has to happen is we have to be made alive in Christ. And that's that, yeah, in order to be able to believe. So a new heart in Christ, which is what every person really needs, 
this is the thing the world doesn't understand, the world isn't going to help you understand, is that if there's going to be any real change, any real transformation of individual lives, of families, of cultures, of societies, there has to be new hearts. A new heart from Christ, a new heart in Christ. And a new heart in Christ is only possible for us and even valuable to us because Christ never sinned and lived righteously all his days. That's why we talked about what we just talked about. He did not need to be born again, but we do. So turn, if you would, to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where we'll see the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. And it might be one of the clearest, greatest, most important passages of Scripture when it comes to even understanding the problem of the heart, the primacy of the heart in human life, as well as the only answer to that problem. John 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? So nobody could see. Why would he not want anybody to see? Yeah, he's afraid. What's he afraid of? Yeah, the Jews, the religious leaders being put, I mean, here he is, a religious leader himself, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And you see here even operating this, one of the most primary principles of our heart problem, that's just the fear of man, the fear of people, the fear of human opinion, the fear of what will others do without having an infinitely greater fear of God. So here he is, he's going to come to Jesus by night because he's afraid. He's going to say to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. It's as far as he's able to really go right now. For, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's interesting he knows. Okay, so God's with you. He just didn't know he is God who's with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? This is going to be a theme throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus is using a physical image to teach a spiritual truth and we just cling to that physical image. Like, what? How can a grown man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So again, this just shows how we need a new heart to even believe because this makes no sense. We don't possibly grasp what Jesus is saying if he doesn't give us eyes to see. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. I I would parallel that to the water. That which is born of spirit is spirit. That's parallels to the spirit in that previous verse. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus by night because he's afraid. He's sort of ruled at this point by the fear of man. He's blinded to who Jesus is. He just thinks he's okay. He's a good teacher. God's with him. But then we're going to hear from Jesus him pointing to one of the most important and most significant dynamics that's needed in the heart. And that is a new heart. A regenerated heart. You must be born again. This is important because the very thing we don't need is to be physically born again. How many of us think, you know, if I could just have a redo, if I could just go back, if I know now what I knew then, if I could just go back, how many of you think, okay, if I could just go back to high school, I could just patch all that up. If 
I could just go back to college, I could redo that, I would do this instead of this. Like how many of us live in that sort of what I call retrospective self-righteousness, which is what regret is? We just want to be able to look back on our life and go, you know what, I was actually pretty good. Or we want to go back into our life and fix all of that. But Jesus is saying it won't help. You'll just find a new different, different ways of sinning. Even if you avoid those, you'll fall into other traps. You don't need to be physic, you don't need a physical redo, you don't need a biological redo. That though the day will come when we get sort of new glorified bodies, we have to get a new heart first. And that's what Jesus is getting at. But he's also not introducing something that's new, that regeneration was always the plan. That when we consider the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, it should be clear that he's not making it up as he goes. This isn't sort of an audible from Christ, where he's getting with Nicodemus and realizing, you know what, actually, let's introduce this new idea. In regeneration, it was always the plan. He's explaining something that he believes Nicodemus has every reason to already understand. Or he's going to even say it to him like, you're a teacher of Israel? And you don't know what I'm talking about? Nicodemus, you're an expert in the Old Testament. You know what's been written. And you don't realize what I'm saying. That both illustrates, number one, how regeneration is always the plan. And number two, even though it was always the plan, we never saw it. We never got it apart from grace. The promise of a new heart, of a kind of spiritual rebirth, it was all over the New Testament, or the Old Testament. Even Psalm 51, where David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. None of that can possibly be fulfilled under the old covenant. It's only going to be fulfilled under the new covenant. He's only going to be able to get a new heart created in him if Christ comes and accomplishes what he does. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will, as God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, meaning a heart that can believe, a heart that can understand, a heart that can know him. And even in Ezekiel 36, you hopefully heard how a new heart and a new spirit are synonymous. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. In other words, they don't constitute separate parts of the inner person, one that you need sort of the gospel for, the other one you need psychology for, or sociology for, or some philosophy for. One part transformed by the gospel, one part transformed by some human thing. No, he's using them synonymously. New spirit, new heart. It's all one package. The grace of God in Christ gives a new heart and a new spirit as one and the same gift. And so what the Mosaic Law is going to do is expose our need for that new heart. What the Mosaic Law wasn't supposed to be is a ladder for our hearts to climb to God. A set of rules that our hearts could then keep in order to merit ourselves to God, to commend ourselves to God. No, the, the law was there for a number of reasons, and one was to, like a mirror to show us our need for a new heart, to show us our futility in keeping God's law. Even while he's giving the law in Exodus 32, they're on the, at the base of the mountain breaking the law. That's, that's some of the irony we're meant to see in the story of Exodus. God's up on the mountain with Moses saying, don't have any other gods before me, don't make idols as they're making an idol at the base of the mountain. 
So clearly the, the law wasn't going to be given so that they had this ladder they could climb to God, but to expose how much sort of under judgment they were, the condition of, what their condition of their hearts really were, and ours. That's what the law does. The Mosaic law revealed just how sinful we were, how much we needed God to intervene, how much we needed a new covenant, a new covenant that didn't depend in any way on us, in any way on us keeping anything. It would depend entirely upon God. That's what we get in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's God saying there's going to be a new covenant I'm going to bring. And notice how he's going to say something similar to what he did to Israel under the old covenant. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Have you heard that before? I will take you as my possession. I will be your God when he's bringing them out of Egypt. But what the old covenant is going to expose is they couldn't do it. They couldn't uphold that side of it. So God's like, I'm going to make a new covenant. That old covenant's going to serve its purpose, even as a servant to your salvation, to help you see your need for a new covenant. I'm going to have to take my law, and I'm going to have to write it on your hearts. I'm going to have to give you new hearts to believe. So God's law written upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's law fulfilled by Christ. His righteousness credited to us. This is the only way we can be saved and truly changed. There's no plan B. There's no other track to God. And Jesus will say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Can't meditate your way there. Can't clean yourself up to get there. Can't punish your sins away to get there. So even the prophets of Israel, of course, were not inventing a plan. They were even just announcing a plan that God had even before the foundation of the world. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Where it says, He, God the Father, chose us in Him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. This idea that you were chosen to be in Him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined, or that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And even all those phrases through Ephesians 1, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, adopted, Sons, those are all words of transformation, of you being made new, of you being a new person. And what he's saying is that's what God intended to do before the foundation of the world, that he wrote your name in his book, that he chose you to be set apart in him, that he chose to give you this new heart in Christ, to adopt you no longer, not as an enemy, but as a son, as a daughter. So regeneration was always the plan. But also regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not our work. We see it there again in John 3, 5, in Jesus' words to Nicodemus, we must be born of water and the Spirit. There's something that God has to do to bring us from death to life. 
1 Peter 1, where it says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Just even that phrase, what did you contribute to being born again? He caused you to be born again. And once born again, once we're given this new heart, our eyes are open to who Christ is and we believed. That's why we're, we all sort of come to faith in Christ. In those early days, we're sort of saved, having sort of one perspective of what happened. Because somebody said, hey, trust in Christ, be saved, believe. Maybe it was, okay, believe this, pray this. Something did make sense to you that never did before. Something in you changed. You grieved your sin in a way you didn't understand. You felt things you didn't understand. But then you looked to Christ and you could tell, okay, he's the one. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. My hope's in him. And it felt like you did a lot, right? And it, kind of, it felt like there was just a lot in there that you were doing. And certainly you were involved in all of that. But then it sort of takes all the years after and you start reading and you start going, wait a minute caused me to be born again, like in him before the foundation of the world. He set me apart in Christ before I was ever around. Like, and you start putting all these pieces together and start going, okay, wait a minute. The spirit was just doing all this stuff in me. There's a reason the gospel made sense all of a sudden. There's a reason I noticed what a sinner I was. <laughs> There's a reason I noticed that I was a sinner under the wrath of God and what was coming. Okay, there's a reason that Christ and the cross and his death and resurrection just blew up to me as this is it. This is the only way I can be redeemed. The only way I can be forgiven is in him. That's because yeah, you were dead and now you were made alive in Christ. And that was a work of the Spirit. Yeah, Acts 16, 14, when Paul is speaking in Philippi there by the river and he's preaching the gospel, and it says of Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Just the Lord opened her heart to pay attention and to understand what Paul was expressing and communicating. So hopefully that, that doesn't relieve the pressure from us to proclaim the gospel. It does relieve the pressure of convincing people, of making them believe it. Because that has to happen. The Lord has to open the heart has to regenerate it, to believe what's being proclaimed. Titus 3, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There's something the Spirit was doing that brought about regeneration and renewal. And that when that goodness of God and his saving mercy appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that's how he saved us, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not because of our great works, because of his great work, because of his great mercy. And as we see there, regeneration comes through Jesus Christ. If we look again at Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is really important because we're even living in an age where there's what I call the resurgence of the Christian contemplative movement, the Christian mysticism movement. The idea that you can go out to a beach and stand there and listen to the ocean and, and sort of have a thing with God. 
where you're just sort of saved, redeemed, where something's happening, but it's around Jesus. It's bypassing him. It's, okay, you can just go and meditate on God and be changed, like in some mystical way. And so it'll fill sort of the Christian life with all these, whether it's ceremonies or rituals or sort of mystical practices, but what isn't at the heart of it is through Jesus Christ. That's, that's how we're reconciled to God. That's how God is delivering salvation to us, through him. And number four, regeneration comes through union with Christ. So regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, and it comes to us through union with Christ. Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So even that, notice that phrase, walk in newness of life, it's because we're put in him, united to him in his death and resurrection. So if someone asks you, okay, what is a Christian? You could easily just say someone who is in Christ. A lot of times we'll go, here's the list of all the things you, you have to believe which often, yeah, here's what Christians believe. But the basics of it is, okay, you're a Christian if you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, here are the things that are going to come out of you. Here are the things you're going to start believing and confessing and seeing and understanding. But that newness of life is the result of being united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in him is the life. So it's by union with him that we get life. He's the vine, we're the branches. There's other ways of saying it. So it's really important so that, yeah, when we think about change, transformation, whether it's in our own lives, in the lives of others, it has to begin with regeneration. That every kind of change that happens apart from a new heart, apart from being put in Christ, it's just temporary. It's fleeting. It's surface. It's washing the outside of cups. It's why Jesus with the Pharisees is so constantly trying to get to that kind of imagery that, okay, you're whitewashed tombs. All this stuff you're doing that's religious and biblical, but inside you, it's dead men's bones. You're doing all this effort to wash the outside of the cup, but the inside is still filthy. And of course, as we see from them, they're trying to do everything around Jesus. Okay, Whatever we're trying to do to commend ourselves to God, we don't want him in the middle of it. They don't even recognize who he is. So regeneration comes through union with Christ, whether it's change in our own life, whether it's change in the lives of other people. There's no other way. You know, use the illustration before. It's like arranging deck furniture on the Titanic, which is what I think all sort of counseling and self-help and self-improvement and change programs are apart from Jesus. You're just out on the Titanic and you're straightening furniture. You're getting people to come out and play the violin. You're still inside, you know, you're arranging the china, getting a nice meal. You're doing all these things to make the journey really pleasant, to make the journey more comfortable. But the ship is going down. And all of that's going to be at the bottom of the ocean by the end. And so what God's going to offer is I'm going to give you a whole new boat, a whole new ship to get on. We're going to get rid of that hole. And it's not going to be your doing. It's going to be my doing. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
What a statement Jesus is making. Apart from me, you can't do anything that is worthy, anything that is sort of commendable to God, anything that's pleasing to God, anything that's actually going to make a real difference. Apart from me, you can't do anything. But what regeneration does is it places me under the control of a new master, a new Lord, a new Savior. That being born again by the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ because of the grace of God is the only kind of change that lasts. Not just because it gives me a new heart, but because it makes me a new creation, puts me on a whole new road. And it lasts because it unites us to Christ. It fills us with the spirit of Christ so that a new person can control us, which is a lot of what we talked about in previous weeks, right? It's the real reason for what comes out of us is not, okay, our upbringing, our physiology, our society, our, it's whatever rules my heart will rule my life. It's what's governing the inside. And when you're put in Christ and his spirit's put in you, there's now a new governing principle. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 8 through 11. So you must consider yourselves then dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's not saying just pretend. He's saying, no, consider it because that's the truth. You are dead to sin. You're alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have a whole new ruling orientation, a whole new power that's at work in you. Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Lynn, this gets back to your question earlier that, okay, there's, there's sin still though in me. How am I to think about all this? Well, let not sin reign in your mortal body because it's really not in charge. It's really not the greatest power that's in you. But you still, if you want, can keep giving yourself to it. What I call voluntary slavery, even though you're not enslaved. It's like, okay, we were in the prison, we were in shackles, we were in chains, we were dead. God comes in, he makes you alive through his spirit. He takes the shackles off. He pays the penalty for the judgment that you are enduring and should endure. And then he sets you free. He, he opens the, the gates of the prison. He opens the doors. And he turns on all the lights. He gives you new clothes. New, and, and he leads you out. So now you're a new creation. Out of the prison. Out of death. All those things. Now, there's days or moments or hours where we can decide, you know what? I know I'm new, but I sure liked that prison. It just was familiar. It was cozy. There were some cracks on the wall that... I recognize that there's just the smell that I'm missing. And so we wander back in. We walk into that cell and we try to close the door, but what happens? Every time we close it, what does it do? It slings back open. Try to close it, try to lock it, slings back open. We go sit down on the floor, we try to get those shackles and we put them on, we try to click them shut, what happens? Just keep dropping off. Try to put them back. You know, and so we can go in and sort of try to play that part, but the shackles are off. The door's open. It's not your home anymore. 
You don't belong there. But there's something in us that every now and then wants to go smell it again. Wants to go, well, I'm trying to think, those chicken nuggets, were those, I think those were good sometimes. And we'll go eat them and go, wait a minute, what is this? It's not even food. So we forget. Forget what life was really like there. We misunderstand how glorious it is outside the prison. But that's a way to think about it. So we can go volunteer. Go volunteer to spend an hour in here. But the shackles aren't binding. The doors aren't locked. At any point, Paul's saying, don't, don't let sin reign over you to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. There's another view of the body. It's an instrument, either to righteousness or unrighteousness. It doesn't have to have mastery over you. That's why Paul says, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I preach the gospel and then go be disqualified. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. He's not saying theoretically. He's saying it does not have dominion over you. So don't act like it has dominion over you. This is really important if you're a believer struggling with alcohol abuse or temptation, drug abuse or temptation, pornography abuse, or, all this, so that in your mind you realize you're actually not enslaved. Something in you, your body is telling you you can't resist. This is too much for you. This is too great. Well, God's telling you, no, it it's, doesn't have dominion over you. Don't let it have dominion over you. You're not a slave to it. Don't act like a slave to it. Come out into the light. Since you're not under law, but under grace. That's the new sort of operating principle. No longer under law, trying to sort of relate to God through the law, but under grace, relating to God through grace through unmerited favor. That's the ruling now principle of this relationship. And that's meant to affect the way I see everything, the way I relate to everybody else. No longer under death, but alive to him and with him. No longer under law, but under grace. No longer mastered by sin, but mastered by Christ. No longer an instrument of unrighteousness, but an instrument of righteousness. What it means is the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a self-improvement program. It's supernatural transformation of a human being. It's supernatural transformation of our entire inner being. It's not a strategy for tweaking our lives in the right direction. It's union with God. It's complete overhaul. It's a whole new creation. It's the gift of everlasting life. It's so much more that everything else humans offer is just peanuts compared to like prime rib gospel food. Any questions, thoughts, comments before we get to implications? Just to know that was a fly through, just regeneration and new heart and the necessity of a new heart and how we get a new heart. Any comments, questions? Yeah, Brad. Yeah, Brad's referring to Mike Lawrence's book on conversion and a chapter in it that 
comments on how we're, God's calling us to be new, not nice. And he's, the work he's doing is to make us new, not just to make us nice, to sort of help us to realize that what he's after, what he's doing, the change is, is bigger, broader, deeper, more internal than just external cleaning things up. Because there is a temptation just to go for that because it feels like we can do that fast. There's also a temptation to go to that because that's what people might see and be impressed with. It's like if you've got a car that you're going to, and just take this physical illustration of a car that's just, yeah, however many years old, covered in rust, everything, everything's out of shape. And it's like, okay, I want to make this car look good. And so we just give it this beautiful, incredible new paint job. We don't do anything else. And then we get it started somehow and we start driving around. And yes, people will look at it and go, wow, you did some great work on that car. But anybody who really knows cars and how cars work and how you actually make a new car will know that's not going to last long because there's still rust inside it there's, and it's going to eat its way out. <laughs> there's still the engine still in the kind of shape it's in and it needs a whole new engine. And yeah, you've put all that duct tape over the upholstery on the seats and when it's brand new duct tape on there, it looks like, oh, I guess it's okay. But then that starts to wither and fall apart. So the idea that what God's doing in salvation, it actually might look worse for a while before it looks better. When he starts tearing things out and down, when he starts taking fenders off and actually takes your engine out of the car and like jacks it up on a, on a, for, for the whole church to see, <laughs> you know, what it all looks like. But that's the kind of renovation, that's what he's doing. That's why, you know, you may have heard the adage that the church is not a museum of perfected Christians. It's a hospital of sick Christians in the process of being healed. Like, and so the, the church is the place where you come into the shop and God starts taking fenders off. He starts taking engines out. He starts getting into the inner parts because he's going to change it all. And he doesn't really care how it all looks, right? I talked about it with David where his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, and he's going to cover it up. And for over a year, it's going to go unnoticed. But God saw, God knew then the time's going to come when he's going to send Nathan the prophet. He's going to confront David. And he's going to take the life of that child of that adultery to make a point to the world that he's holy. But then he's going to forgive David and care for David and love David. And, and we get Psalm 51 out of that. David's going to repent. David's going to grieve it. They're going to be reconciled. And then what's God going to do? He's going to say, well, let's put it in the Bible. Are you okay with that? The idea that David's like, hey, let's keep it hidden. God's like, let's canonize it. And then every century of every Christian that will ever live will know. But what's amazing is we don't get to the end of the story and just obsess about David. We're not going to get to heaven and look at David. Good man, David. No, we're, we're going to go. We're going to look at Christ. We're going to be amazed at Christ. The hero of the story was never meant to be David. And all along the way, it doesn't look pretty. You know, redemption is not nice. God's not in the process of sort of creating just nice-looking people, but new people, new creations. And that can be very messy work. Um, yeah, the implications, just the nature of our salvation. When we talked about just, yeah, it was brought up already, you got, you got to be born again for regeneration. God choosing you, setting you apart, putting you in Christ, the Spirit giving you a new heart through union with the Son. That's where your salvation road really started. Faith and repentance then comes next. We'll talk about that next week. 
Adoption becomes because of it. Justification is a result of it. Redemption is going to come. Reconciliation comes. Sanctification. Eternal life. All those things because God chose you and put you in Christ and gave you a new heart to be born again. That's why you can be justified before him. Christ's righteousness counted to you. Your sin taken away. That's how you're redeemed. Your sins are paid for. It's how you're reconciled. It's the very road of sanctification begins there with being a new creation. I think another implication is it's the only foundation for true and lasting change. It's the only foundation for true and lasting change. Just the implications and for us to see the gift of regeneration, of being born again by the Spirit, becoming a new <clears throat> creature, of receiving a new heart in Christ. It brings about the kind of change, the kind of new life that just can't be quantified. It can't be measured. No technology compares to it. No scheme, no strategy, no therapy, no medicine, no essential oil or collection of essential oils, no invention of humanity can even come close, can even sniff at, can even be in the ballpark of what God does in regeneration. Another implication is this idea of God with us and in us because of regeneration. Colossians 1.27, where Paul calls the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This idea that because he gives you a new heart in Christ, that, that Christ is actually able to dwell in you, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are his possession, not sort of just in an external ownership standpoint, but in an indwelling standpoint, like we're actually his possession, he lives in us. That's a huge implication of regeneration, a huge implication of, of getting a new heart, a new heart where God dwells, a new heart that he is changing. Other implications you can think of, we'll close here just with just everything we've talked about today. What do you think other implications are for just the gift of a new heart? for the gift of regeneration? What do you think implications are for us as followers of Christ? Howard? Yeah, we kind of read that. So it spurs us to good works. We kind of read that in um, Romans 6, but especially I think of Ephesians 2, that because of this work of grace in you, giving you a new heart, and it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ, for good works, which were prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Just that idea that we were, we've been recreated in Christ, put in Christ, so that we're his workmanship, but then created for good works, that we should walk in them. And so just that, yeah, the idea that regeneration is a motivation now to love others, a motivation to serve others. The fact that we have the mind of Christ is held in Philippians 2, therefore have this mind in you that was his, to be a servant, to lower ourselves, to consider others better than ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So enduring suffering and just the hatred of the world. Yeah. With yeah. With strength. With endurance. With faith. I think it's somewhere in John, right, that talks about the because you're new creations. The, the world doesn't know you, can't understand you, is going to hate you and despise you. And so, yeah, an implication is you'll never quite fit in here. And so, I hope you're not trying to. Right? I hope we're not expending energy 
trying to fit in, trying to make this world our home, trying to figure out a way to make being a Christian more palpable to a world that hates Jesus. <laughs> when Jesus is like, no, a servant's not above his master. They're, they're, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate you. And as you follow me, and so, so yeah, there's something about you know, being born again in the spirit, being in Christ that is meant to help us understand that that kind of suffering is coming, but number two, to endure it with joy. Even the disciples in Acts, when they're going to be suffered and persecuted, they're going to go out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, that they, that they saw that as this great privilege. Wow, that God would count us worthy to suffer for his name, to suffer as those called by his name. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the comment is also, it's not just this nice idea, this nice concept, but an actual truth you need to like get into, think about, dwell on, talk to God about, just bathe in it. Yes, because you, especially you have to go, why does Paul keep bringing it up? You know, why is he talking about being a new creation all the time? Why is he talking about being born again? Why is he talking about regeneration all the time? Yeah, because he thinks this is not just a sort of a sideshow. This is not just a side idea. No, this is central to what it means to be a Christian. This is something we're meant to be thinking deeply about, thinking carefully about, thinking biblically about. And the more we do and the more we understand it, um, the more it changes the way we see God, the way we see ourselves, the way we see each other, the way we see life, the way we endure everything. Yeah, thank you. Let me pray for us. Well, one more, go ahead. I was gonna say, our new heart Yeah, that's good. So just the comment is our new heart is permanent. So what's an implication of that is just a sense of security, right? A sense of being in him, a sense of hope, a sense of even this idea the Christ in you, the hope of glory. The basis for our hope is, yeah, this new heart he's given us, he's not going to take it back. This new heart he's given us isn't going to be defiled and corrupted. That this is a new heart that is permanent, that is ours in him forever. That, and because the spirit is in us, that's why it's called, okay, the seal of the spirit, the guarantee of the spirit. The fact that he's in us, in our heart, that's the down payment. That's the mark from God, the seal of his signet ring that we're his. We belong to him. We always will be. So to live life with a great sense of security in that, a great sense of peace in that, that the Lord knows those who are his. Um, yeah, that's good. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do want to close just with that sense of hope and peace and security and gratitude and thanksgiving. We praise you, God, um, because you are making all things new. You have made us new. We thank you for this great work of salvation through Christ that, that we've benefited from. We thank you for the new hearts you've given us in him. We pray that you would keep growing us and changing us and help us to believe and trust all that you have done um, in making us new. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks.